Hello, and welcome to episode 161 of the Cognicast, a podcast about software and the people who create it. This week, Gotti Shaben talks to Mike Fikes about his experience helping maintain ClojureScript and the reach of the language from web browsers to microcontrollers. to us so what you know <laughs> I know it's not yeah. recording right now um, okay so uh... welcome everybody today is june 15th 2021 and this is the cognicast i'm Gotti shaban and today it's my great pleasure to welcome mike fikes to the show thanks for being with us mike hi Gotti. how you doing man i'm great good. to be here yeah it's a sunny day in Charleston. Uh, you're calling us from 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 near Dulles, Virginia area. Nice. Near how how close near, are you? Near DC, to... like the north north uh, eastern part of Virginia, really. I see. So close to US East One. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> very, very nice. <laughs> what is it? May East, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. Well, nice. Um. So you are a closure script. Uh, compiler maintainer. Can you explain to our viewers um, all the things that you do for the uh, f- for the closure ecosystem, which I know is uh, a massive undertaking? Um, yeah, yeah. It might be worth saying that I, I, my personally, I was like, I started off as a closure developer, and I could care less about the whole JavaScript ecosystem. I was, you know, I, I historically was like a server side developer. Um, but then I got into like doing mobile apps mm-hmm. and uh, I wanted to continue to use this great language on a mobile app, you know, and uh, I tried, I tried really hard to get closure to, to somehow compile. I was even considering other lisps that could compile down to native code to get them onto mobile apps. Uh, but then ultimately I, I basically, um, learned that you could uh, compile ClojureScript to JavaScript and get that to run inside of a mobile app using like a JavaScript en- engine inside of a mobile app. So I, I kind of went down that path. And to kind of help answer the question you asked, I found at the time, this was like, oh man, like six years ago, seven years ago, uh, ClojureScript was kind of this thing where if you were to use it, you kind of had to be ready to like roll up your sleeves and mm-hmm. fix it if something broke. <laughs> it's kind of like the an- analogy of like, I think about like when you try to, if you would imagine people like in their early 1900s driving a a car across America, if you were to do that, you would have to be prepared to like (laughs) fix your car halfway across America (laughs) because you wouldn't otherwise make it. Um, So that's, that's kind of what sucked me in was like, here was this language that um, needed to, needed loving care. And, you know, it kind of needed you to, to like dig into things if it, if it didn't work and, and to, and to be honest at the time, the core of the ClojureScript um, compiler was pretty solid at that point in time anyway. So I don't want to make it sound like, you, you know, things were breaking left and right and you had to fix it, but you would, you would hit odd corner cases. Sure. Um, and that kind of like drew me into like fundamentally like fixing or just improving things. Like at the time, uh, the REPL, for example, when you would evaluate forms in the ClojureScript REPL, you would not see uh, VARs at all. So if you defined a function, what it would do is just spit back the contents of that function back at you and you wouldn't see like the var name, you know, <laughs> little things like that were like fairly immature at the time. So that was, I remember that was one of the contributions I made was like figuring out how to get it to do that properly. Um, so that, that kind of drew me in. And also to be honest, it was like David Nolan, Nolan's willingness to accept contributions from people like me, you know, it's like, oh, wow, I'm contributing to a compiler now. <laughs> and that's kind of intoxicating, right? You're like, wow, I can help. Uh, change the world. I can make this you, compiler better. You could change everybody's code like that. Yes, I have control. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so it was almost a time where eighty percent of eighty uh, percent of the ClojureScript um, environment was there, but there's mm-hmm. just all these um, sort of paper cuts to get to where we are yeah. today. Which I is would the, say it was kind of like um, the. The, the fundamental ability of that compiler to produce JavaScript that worked properly was very solid even at that point in time. 
but it's all the like peripheral stuff, tooling surrounding it, certainly, even today still. Um, all the, you know, how, how that compiler interacts with the world around it um, has always been like very complicated. And, and uh, you know, if you're going to do something with it, you that's where you definitely need to roll up your sleeves. But even even the um, some of the stuff surrounding how the REPL worked and, and even some minor things in the compiler and the code generated, you, you could you could back then easily find things that could be improved or even fixed back then. So that's, you know, that's that kind of led me to becoming kind of a ClojureScript compiler maintainer. I just took an interest in it, really. Um, it was, I'm, I, I committed myself to it. I said, okay, if I'm going to use this language, I want to make sure that it works for me. For sure. It's, it's, I mean, the, it's the typical thing. You've got to scratch your own itch kind of thing. Well, and, and you've, you've recently helped uh, sort of bring ClojureScript to new frontiers, like, uh, like MCUs, like uh, that's, React yeah, that's, Native. Yeah, that's, I think if you want to like make a broad swath of what I've been doing is kind of like taking this language and trying to, you know, it already has reach, as, as Rich would say, ClojureScript has reach, but just trying to make, try to even further extend that reach. Um, and one of the things that was going on back then is was this, uh, or it actually um, started about five years ago was this whole notion of self-hosted ClojureScript. And um, you, you already get this for free in Clojure where you kind of, you have the compiler with you. Uh, so if you want to, um, you know, jack into some server process with a REPL and evaluate some forms. The compiler's there to actually compile the forms that you issue and mm -hmm. uh, you have eval and stuff like that. It, it, you get the whole thing there um, with Clojure. Whereas with ClojureScript, because it was, um, you know, it was informed by its need to target the web, uh, there was this overarching goal to like make the, the deliverable artifact that gets spit out of it very, very small. Mm. Um, and because of that, um, the compiler um, is not part of what you get when you when you compile ClojureScript. You know, it basically optimizes it to death and gets rid of everything. Uh, and the compiler is certainly not something that ends up in your JavaScript that you normally um, get when you um, when you when you target a web app with ClojureScript. But having said that, um, ClojureScript itself is written in Clojure. <laughs> and, so that's the self-hosting trick. I'm yeah, so, wondering if you so could was, explain to our viewers or our listeners uh, what self-hosting really means. Okay, so if you if you look at the ClojureScript compiler, well, if you look at Clojure, Clojure's kind of written largely uh, in Java for the compiler part, I want to say, and then a lot of the runtime itself is in Clojure, but with ClojureScript, the entire thing, the entire ClojureScript compiler is nice and clean and written in Clojure, basically, uh, from the get-go. There was no nothing else but Clojure in the compiler. Maybe Maybe that's not strictly true, but 99.9% .9 of it, you know, is all closure. So around that point in time, uh, there was uh, a new thing added to closure called reader conditionals, uh, which would let you basically, uh, when you're compiling, you could say, hey, if you're, if you're compiling targeting closure, spit out this or do this thing. And if not, if you're, if you're compiling targeting closure script, uh, do this other thing, you know, spit out some other code. And where that's useful is if you're, you know, creating a library that's meant to be used from both of those languages, or even, I guess, to be to be fair, there's a, a Clojure CLR is also supported. So you could have, you know, all three of these targets. Mm -hmm. uh, and around that time, the, the reader conditional thing meant that you could take, if you look at some of the stuff that's generated um, or some of the code that's in the Clojure script compiler, um, for example, like to, to, to be concrete, like you might say, I have a, a try catch, right? And inside the closure script compiler somewhere. And it might be catching um, an exception, a, a you know, capital a e exception. Yeah. Capital, yeah, exactly. Thank you. Capital E exception. And if you were to try to compile code like that, that's an example where that wouldn't work in closure script if you were targeting a JavaScript environment. Uh, so you just have to like conditionally produce a little bit of different code there to catch something else. Uh, in ClojureScript, you could catch JS error or mm. uh, colon default or whatever. But that's a small example where a reader conditional can fundamentally make your code that you've written portable between ClojureScript and Clojure. Um, and that that was, if I understand things correctly from the way David Nolan was characterizing it at the time, that reader conditional feature was the thing that allowed self-hosted ClojureScript to finally become a thing. Because you could then say, oh, let's take this entire... Uh, 
Closure Script Compiler, which is ostensibly just written all in Closure, sure. and like patch it up here and there uh, in, in various ways with the reader conditionals lightly, you know, just here and there where it was needed. And then you could compile the whole thing. Uh, and this is where it, it's kind of difficult to explain and kind of mind bending, but you can, you can compile the compiler itself. Um, and what, what effectively happens then is that um, the, the compiler gets included in the JavaScript that you're emitting. Hmm. Oh, so your JavaScript becomes much larger now uh, because you know, you're including the entire compiler in there. Um, but what this, the consequence of this is that once you've compiled everything down to JavaScript and you put it in some target environment, since the compiler is there with you now, um, you, can, you can use it to compile additional things that, that you, didn't, you weren't compiling uh, at the time when you were developing, the, developing things in the first place. Um, I see. So the so, compiler is just it, it's just a program, and yes. it's being adapted to run fully in JavaScript rather than uh, rather than on the closure side emitting JavaScript. And so uh, you know, yes. it just needs some. It needs those reader conditionals to uh, you know uh, to allow that to, to be possible. Yeah. Yeah. And then once once you're there, then. Um, then what you could do is you could, for example, you could make a REPL that works uh, in the target JavaScript environment. You could make a closure script REPL that works in that environment because you have the compiler with you. And it's very simple. It's a simple step there to say, okay, let me let me write some code that will read a form in, uh, pass it to that compiler, mm -hmm. generate some JavaScript effectively. Um, load and then it. <laughs> load it, exactly. And you have a REPL. Um, so that was one of the... Um, one of the things that I pr worked on after, you know, David Nolan created that fundamental facility, but then I took it and used it to create um, Plonk and Replete. Uh, Plonk is, uh, well, Plonk is basically just a, um, a self-hosted closure script REPL that um, works on a Mac and it also targets Linux. And, and the way it's doing that is it's the, the environment that it's using is JavaScript core. Um, so it effectively, like if it, to, to make a long story short, you could get Plonk um, and put it on a Mac or put it on, um, you know, just a binary at that point, um, put it on, put it on a Mac or Linux and fire it up. And there is no, no JVM anywhere in sight. Well, you could have one there, but it's not being used by Plonk. Plonk then fires up quickly and then you have a REPL and you can evaluate um, closure script forms right there in that self-hosted Plonk environment. That's that's what Plonk is. It's not not really that uh, fancy, but where where um, things became interesting was with Replete, hmm. uh, and Replete is basically the same idea but on an iPhone. And why that's interesting is that um, uh, without that, if you if you think about it, let's say you wanted to say, oh, I want to make a closure or closure script REPL that runs on a mobile device, either hmm. either an iPhone or Android. You fundamentally you might start by saying, okay. Um, can I get Closure to run there? And I think people have done that for Android. Uh, you can you can get um, well, I know people have. You can get Closure to run on Android, mm -hmm. and then you can make a REPL on Android. But on on iPhone, <laughs> there's no Java that's going to run on an iPhone, right? I guess you could. I don't. You never want to say something's impossible, but <laughs> it's just like a no go from the start. You kind of have to think about doing it with um, Closure Script, uh, and that's. That's effectively, uh, to make a long story short, Replete is basically the same thing as Plonk, but it's like a self-hosted closure script REPL uh, for your iPhone. I see. Um, so it's the same sort of mechanism where you have that the self-hosted self-hosted closure script on top of um, JavaScript core, which, mm -hmm. which is the that's the engine used in Safari and Mac, right? It is. Yes. Yeah. Sorry. Yes. So if you if you go to the um, the iOS app store and download Replete, what you're really getting is a tiny little shell of a mobile app that is wrapping um, a, basically a self-hosted closure script environment, uh, and in that self-hosted closure script environment is the closure script compiler compiled all down to JavaScript, uh, and it just works. Um, there was a lot of stuff to be done to 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 get that to work, but yeah. um, <laughs> don't want to gloss over it too much. But yeah, that's that's what that is. And then subsequently, um, Replete was then ported to uh, Android, uh, and in Android, it's the same thing, but instead of JavaScript Core, 
it's using, uh, what is it? I want to say J2V8, I think. I think it's the same engine that powers Node. Okay. Um, there's just another, there's another JavaScript engine that you can plug into your uh, Android uh, mobile apps there. And it's the same pattern there. Uh, and so, Replete was, I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Oh, no, I was, I was, I was going to say, I mean, people, people love uh, the experience of writing closure code and they want that experience everywhere. I'm seeing like a lot of efforts to extend the reach of, uh, of closure. Um, like not only to, to JavaScript engines, but you know, we have, uh, uh, Babashka and the native image stuff. We have, uh, um, yes. And yeah. that's, um, that is in my opinion, really good because it's fast. Um, and that was that was kind of why I made Plunk initially was that um, it it turned out to be much faster uh, for for startup speed than like for example back in the day I would do like line REPL with Closure and you would wait uh, four seconds or so before you had your REPL. Plunk would start up almost instantly as far as a human is concerned, um, and that that kind of leads to this ability to just kind of like script things. You want to like write a um, a little script. Um, and, and have it run. Now, now, to be honest, you could do that with closure these days too. Computers are faster than they used to be five ten years ago. You know, you, you, so you can write your scripts um, in closure, but I think this is where things like um, Babashka starts to shine as if you want to make little command line utilities um, hmm. uh, where you want, you know, it's, it's, it's basically anytime you might use bash, you know, to like do some, you know, write some script for yourself to do something. You're like, come on, why are we why are we writing things in this bash language? Let's write the stuff in in a closure dialect of some sort. Uh, and that's where uh, that's that was the motivation for Plunk at the time was just to make it go really, really fast and let you write scripts. But then I, I want to say that Babashka is like even faster and and much more useful. Hmm. Um, but it's yeah, it's that story of like pushing these things into all the environments. And at the time I was, you know, I was like everyone else. Back six years ago, I was learning closure, closure, and closure script myself for the mm -hmm. first time. And I would go on walks, right? And I would be thinking about this language, you know, like like you often do. You're like, hmm, how does this work? You know, what? How do how do namespace keywords work? You know, all the little features of the language you might be just rummaging through in your mind, trying to think about how they work. And and back then, things like replete didn't exist, so I, you know, I would like, ah, oh, man, I want to just evaluate this here to see how it would. You know, I'd stop my walk, pull off on the side, like, you know. I want to evaluate something. That, that's how I would use Replete once I built it. It was like, oh, here I'm on a walk and there's this weird thing that I, in my mind, I can't predict how it would behave. And I just like pop open Replete and just try a form or two and just. Um, <laughs> that's, that's great. Kind of like, it's there. <laughs> yeah. And that's, that's still today how I use Replete even. I don't, I don't use Replete to like develop any huge things, you know. It's mostly for me just like that instant gratification of like, I want to evaluate a form or two. Uh, and just see how it behaves. Um, there really is nothing like just having a live environment uh, that you can touch and poke at and see see what happens and experiment. And you know, you don't have that whole compile, wait, pray lifecycle. Yeah, and another thing I would say is that um, the closure language is um, it's interesting in that it's it's compact enough in a sense where it's small enough. I remember I was like, I was thinking about a particular problem when I was driving somewhere uh, and it was like a, one of those small enough problems where you could like work through the algorithm in your head, right? Uh, and then I was able to like write the code in my head. <laughs> and then when I got to where I was driving to it, I, I was able to write it down because it was like, you know, six or seven lines of closure um, and pretty much get it to work pretty much immediately. And it, it's... It's the kind of thing where it's like, uh, I just wanted to say like closure is is fairly succinct and, and expressive to the point where you can write code in your head. Like this language extends into your very head, you know? <laughs> you don't need to, <laughs> it's not, compared to things like Java where you're like, I, I could not do that in Java. I could I could maybe write a for loop in my head, you know? <laughs> right. But like something that like is a fairly compl complicated algorithm, you just can't get it all right, you know? At least I can't. So to me, like, Closure is succinct enough where you can do it in your head. You can fit uh, non-trivial algorithms into tweets, you know? And it's just, I think that's one of the powers of the language is that that ability to like be that succinct is just 
makes it easier to express your ideas without um, getting too caught up in boilerplate and whatnot. It'll, yeah, I, I think it allows you to... The, the, the way I view it is it's, it allows you to focus on those problems. And then the, the code is incidental. Like, you can work it out in your head and then you, you type it out and it's, you know, it's pretty much there. You know, you evaluate it, you see where it fits, you see where it um, meets your mental model of what you thought was going to happen and you fix it up where that, where there's a, uh, where there's some dissonance and then you go on with your day, <laughs> you know, it's just, yeah. um, I, I, I don't know if it's just the succinct core or it just gets out of your way. I think it's just so unsurprising and it's, um, obviously it's like mm-hmm. super well crafted by somebody who has, uh, like really good taste in that, uh, sort of thing. But, um, mm-hmm. yeah, I just, I, the, the way I think about it is it, I just don't focus on the code, you know, and all, yes, all these other exactly. language, yeah. I, you obsess over code writing as if it's some sort of, um, uh, important activity, but is, the real important activity is actually thinking about the algorithm or thinking about the problem or yeah i i i was that what you just said reminded me of back when i used to program in c++ and that language consumed a big chunk of my brain <laughs> and and i would i was always trying to become a better coder in c++ and and to me I, what i remember doing was basically carving out parts of that language that i wouldn't use and just kind of like using a you know mastering a subset of it you know and trying to get that straight in my head. But even then, that was a big part of what it meant to be a developer in C++ was uh, being proficient in this language. And I feel like, for me, with Clojure, it's this it's a solved problem now in my head. You know, it's like, I know this language. I don't need to think about it too much anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, it's got interesting facets to it, but it just gets out of the way, you know? Yeah. I can, I can like you said, I can focus on the algorithm. Um when it comes to like things like the, the, the data literals, you know, being able to express a vector or a map just right there as a literal, to me, makes it all the more real. And it, it lines up with the way my brain works. Like I can see the thing. I can see the map. I can see the vector. I can read it in my head and yeah. one back out. And it's like it makes it more there. I'm looking at the actual thing when it's on the screen. It's, it's just, I mean, it's so corny to say it, uh, but it's just data and it's not... It's not function calls that produce data. It's just the data. <laughs> so I know I'm. That's a that's a very powerful idea, though. That they th- I think that's how it makes it so that you know a lot of times when you have to do when you're programming, a lot of it involves a human brain. You know, your own human brain, and you have to reason about this stuff. And all these little things, these little tricks, make it easier to to like think about the code or or interact with it. Do you still remember the uh, operator precedence from your? C++ days? Oh, no. <laughs> and um, on that subject, I even, I even, so uh, my son is in high school now and, and my daughter is a couple years behind her and, and, and they're learning um, math, you know, to like calculus and, and algebra and things like that. And to me, like, that's an example where like, mathematical notation is also not necessarily archaic and, and it has its own precedence rules and, oh man, you know, and, and what made me think of this is like my son will like run into some interesting new mathematical syntax or notation. And I'm like, oh, all it means is this. And then I invariably, I, I have to stop myself, but invariably I, I explain to him like, if this were enclosure, it would look very simple. It would be this, there'd be no <laughs> question or ambiguity about what this thing means. And, you know, there is, you know, the notation itself disappears too. You don't have to worry about like. Uh, Here's where the like, parentheses would have been. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I still do code and seed today, and and I I just put in extra parentheses where I need to. <laughs> so I don't have to think about. <laughs> Compiler like, takes them right life out. <laughs> is, life is too short. Yeah. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Um, y- y- that's. That's sort of one of the the huge disadvantages of uh, some of the command line utilities. You know, no matter what what language they're written in, is uh, the shell forces um, this pattern of, of of syntax for the for the invocation. You know, I mean, sometimes you have dash dash whatever to to flag an option, and that's 
um, analogous to to a, a key value pair in a map. But you know, if you look at your average set shell command, you know, I I often just have to hit dash dash help right the very first thing. I just look yes. it up, see what see what um, kind of ordering. That's, yeah, you need that's to true. And and you know that even Rich Hickey uses the doc command. Well, I'm guessing he does. I don't know this, but like even he created the language. He probably looks up stuff. It's like, how does that work again? You know, <laughs> maybe he doesn't. I don't know. Maybe he's he's got it all like hard coded in his brain. But that's uh, that's all I wanted to say is like the ability to just look up docs in a REPL mm. um, is very powerful. Or just to see the source. Sometimes you're like, oh, the doc's not explaining. Let me just look at the source. Just right there without having to go look up where the source is and yeah. then read it. <laughs> but. Yeah, no, I mean, there's so much, there's so many things that like, uh, I know it sounds like a, a, another love letter to closure, but there are so many things that are, you really, it's a privilege not to think about. <laughs> so, yeah. um, but do you want to, um, talk a little bit about, um, taking closure to extreme levels on, uh, or to closure script on, uh, microcontrollers? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, so um, so at work we are working on some um, basically products that go into cars uh, to to lock and unlock things. I work at Vouch, and we have like a digital identity product, but then we're applying that that the digital identity notion to the problem domain of locking and unlocking physical locks in the world. Hmm. Uh, so so you know we have like software <laughs> that does stuff that like determines authorization decisions on whether or not you're allowed to do something. Uh, but then ultimately we need to make it real in the real world. And we want to like actually like unlock a car or unlock a hotel door and things like that. Um, so that's where we, you know, we, we take a little bit of what we've done and we want to put it onto a microcontroller that can basically actuate that lock. Uh, and uh, also communicate to either your mobile app or the back end, you know, that, to like participate in this, this software system that you're building. Um, so typically, uh, microcontrollers um, have, you know, they have very little uh, memory, very little processing power. Um, but I love this closure language. So <laughs> I wanted to like um, not have to resort to programming in C, uh, which is the typical language you would use on microcontrollers. Um, and so, so um, I, I basically got uh, Closure Script to compile down to or to to run on um, a microcontroller. And the trick with that was is that there already is um, an existing thing called Esperino, uh, which is a JavaScript engine that uh, runs on a microcontroller or are on various microcontrollers. Um, and the way you could think about Esperino is Esperino is just like, a, it's a lightweight JavaScript engine that's written in C or whatever, and it you know, compiles down to code that can run on that microcontroller. And then you can, um, you can get a, a JavaScript REPL into Esperino on a microcontroller if you have you know, some way of communicating over like a serial line or something like that. Um, and then you, can, you could basically type one plus one and hit enter and it'll evaluate it and come back with two, you know, because <laughs> it's JavaScript. So, so it's basically um, a JavaScript environment that uh, that runs on microcontrollers. And is it, it um, does yeah, it cover yeah. like the whole JavaScript language or some large subset? Uh, or it's it's a large subset, and it's actually um, it is pragmatic in certain senses. Like uh, one example that comes to mind is uh, in JavaScript, numbers are effectively I want to think of them as doubles. Um, and uh, but on Esperino there are floats which are half the size. Hmm. Um, so that's one pragmatic decision they took uh, because they're really concerned uh, with with Esperino. The main the main challenge is you might think that it's uh, the main challenge is just a lack of processing speed, but the bigger one that will get you and be a showstopper is the lack of memory, hmm. uh, either flash memory to hold code or or RAM to 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 evaluate things within. That's that is the more uh, lacking resources RAM. I see. Um, so so a lot of the things that are done um, the way Esperino works is it basically takes your code, your JavaScript code, and it it kind of like parses it into uh, some sort of internal in memory structure. So it kind of effectively compiles it 
halfway in a sense. So it's not it's not interpreting things like like if you imagine like the old the way basic computers used to work in the eighties, you'd you know turn them on and you'd type a print hello and <laughs> go to 10 or whatever those basic computers if if i understand those those were actually just interpreting the basic code that you typed into it whereas esperino for the javascript it actually does parse it and turn it into something that's a little more efficient uh is it like a bytecode interpreter or uh, uh i i don't think it converts it to like some intermediate representation that's like bytecode but it is it it does it does do something that that i've so I'm not an expert on it, but I've I've dug in there a little bit, and I've seen that it like puts it into like in-memory like tree structures so that it can like hmm. execute it more quickly after that. Um, Interesting. Are there um like what 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 hmm? what were the parts of uh, ClojureScript that rubbed against the like the memory boundaries of uh, that environment? Oh, okay. I mean, so, are, so, were there adaptations that needed to be done to to make it to make to get it to know, fit in there? Yeah, yeah, just to get a REPL. Uh, yes, there. So, so the main thing um, is exactly that the REPL. So in ClojureScript, when you have a REPL, you um, you have the entire ClojureScript standard library available to you at at your will. You know, at runtime. Mm -hmm. So you can, for example, if you want to say map ink over a vector. You need to have the map function there for you, you know, right there immediately, so you can execute that. Um, you need to have the ink function available, so you have to have the entire standard library available to you, even though you may not be using it all. Mm. It just needs to be there, and that turns out to be like I think about a megabyte of um, of JavaScript once compiled down. Um, so that um, another part that made this all possible is uh, there are the there's these. Uh, microcontrollers called ESP32 uh, chips or modules or whatnot. And they just have like an insane amount of RAM in them, um, enough to, to basically have a ClojureScript REPL into it. Uh, so, so Esperino can work on really tiny chips, like, like ST microcontrollers that have hardly any RAM whatsoever. Uh, but when it comes to trying to get ClojureScript run in there, you have to have the, the, the standard library, you know, CLJS core in there. And that's where the ESP32 kind of like was the thing that made it possible to do hmm. this. Largely just the, the amount of RAM that it had. Um, so there's a project that I did that basically uh, kind of took all those ideas and um, kind of glued it all together. To you know, to be honest, there's there's not a whole lot to the story in terms of like things that you need to do to get it to run there. Like if you compile, if you compile your your closure script to JavaScript and just put it on Esperino, you mm. know, it's kind of glossing it over a little bit, but it'll just run. It'll just go. Um, yeah. And the, the things that you might run into uh, are like, well, fundamentally, how do you load that much code? Like if you're going to load a megabyte of code into um, an ESP32 running uh, Esperino, that was one of the, you know, it's like a, a, a simple challenge, but that was the thing that was causing a lot of grief back then when I was first started messing with it. It's like, here, you're going to load a megabyte of code. How do you even get it on there? Um, and Esperino comes with like a little JavaScript REPL, so you could try pasting it in there. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's your first thing. It's like, okay, let's see how far you can get with that. No, it's going to, you know, you're sitting there like 20 minutes later trying to mess around, trying to get that much code in there. Uh, so the ultimate answer to that was um, Esperino, when it boots, it, uh, it looks for a certain um, partition in its flash memory, uh, and that partition is named JS code. And huh. if you put some JavaScript code in that partition, uh, it'll actually execute that code when it boots. Um, so that's kind of like a place where you might put, like, quote, your firmware or whatever, your JavaScript firmware, just to execute and run when you boot the thing up. Uh, so that turned out to be um, the answer was to put it in there. And so so the 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 tooling that I created called Esprit basically takes takes your code or your REPL and whatnot, and it kind of arranges to put things into that partition. Uh, so it's it's really just a bunch of high-level glue code and scripts to kind of put things in the right place. So, so, that, so you don't actually need to bake it onto the to the Flash. I, I remember seeing a, a yeah, couple okay. summers you made these really neat videos where you were putting microcontrollers uh, and assembling them with with uh, uh, with your son. I think. Um, oh yes, yeah. So so um so I gave a talk about all this, and I was thinking like, what can I make for the talk? Um, 
this was at Closure North. So I'm like, I want to like, you know, take this idea of running Closure Script on an ESP32 and um, apply it to some problem domain and, and use that as something to give a demo of in the talk, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that was that was ultimately what I uh, came up with was like, oh, I'm just going to make some hardware that has an ESP32 on it, and I'm going to make it. I'm going to put some redevelop print LEDs on it <laughs> to make it act like a REPL. <laughs> it's kind of a gimmick, but it's like kind of cool. You're like, yeah, this is all like it's hardware for a talk. If you want to <laughs> think of it that way. <laughs> um, so, uh, yes, to answer your question, you, you once you have like an um, an ESP32, and you don't have to use the hardware that I created. You could use um, you could buy an ESP32 off of Amazon.com or whatever, it'll work with any of those. Um, as long as you get one, there's like, you can go to the um, to the GitHub that I have, but there's different models and some of them are bigger than others and you got to get the biggest one. Um, but once you get that, you do have to flash the stuff onto there. Like mm-hmm. the, the one megabyte of code has to go onto there. Um, so once you, like if the, part of the process is, oh, okay, I want to set up a REPL into the, into the ESP32. Um, there's a phase where it will, th- it will flash all that stuff there and, and get it onto the chip. And then after that, you then say, oh, I just want to connect to a REPL, you know, and it's, it's pretty quick. That, that, that little JS code partition, when it boots, it has to execute all the JavaScript that's in there. And that's like, it takes it like, if I remember it, like 15 seconds to, to execute all it's a, that. Yeah, it's a lot. I mean, there's no JIT. Yeah. I'm assuming it's all static, yeah. parsing, executing. Yes. So one interesting thing on, on that thought is like, uh, if, you, if you're writing C code for a microcontroller, typically they, they boot up instantly. And, and that was shocking mm-hmm. to me. I, I, I'm still kind of new to this whole microcontroller thing. And it's like you, you give the thing power and then it's running. It's doing whatever you've coded it to do. You know, like it's counting things, displaying things, interacting with the world. And it's like instant, you know, the thing's going. Um, with, with this Esprit thing, it has to spend that 15 seconds before it comes up and it can start doing things. Um, and where that's interesting is if you compare that to the idea of putting stuff onto like a Raspberry Pi, um, you know, you could you could run Node and a Closure script system, or you can run Java. You can run Closure on a Raspberry Pi. Um, in in either of those cases, when you start up a Raspberry Pi, I think it takes like I want to say like thirty seconds to forty five seconds to boot up a Raspberry Pi and get going. Um, so, but once you do that, then a Raspberry Pi is just a much more capable. It's effectively a whole computer running. I got one si- sitting under my desk running. Closure, yeah. so <laughs> effectively, yeah, yeah, like a tiny little computer, yeah. But so, so, like in terms of time scale, it's the, it's the same thing for a Raspberry Pi to boot up, as well as uh, an ESP thirty two that has to crunch through the whole Closure Script stand, standard library, right? Yeah, yeah. So, so I think, in, in my opinion, this ESP thirty two thing is kind of um, it's like an initial foray into this direction of trying to get stuff to run there. It's cool. It's very novel. You know, you can. You, if you wanted to, you know, for a lot of problem domains, speed is not of the utmost importance. You, you know, you may be uh, like you, like the thing you have under your desk. Maybe it's just doing something periodically, and it doesn't need to like be super fast. So, if you wanted to, you could you could write some closure script that runs on an ESP32, and it could like perhaps monitor the temperature or something like that and report it somewhere, or you know, do something that that doesn't need um, the utmost of speed. Some like yeah, some like a control loop or a sensor aggregator, stuff yeah. like that. And and for the stuff we're doing at at um, at Vouch at work, um, we're unlocking cars. Um, so what 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 I found, you know, and going down this path is uh, if you if you were to use this to unlock a car, part of what you have to do is you have to send a secure message to that microcontroller, mm-hmm. and the microcontroller has to be convinced that it's that it's you know allowed to actually unlock the car. And it turns out that that when you start doing that kind of stuff, you're you're like um, you're parsing the message that you have sent across. Hmm. Maybe it's in transit. Maybe you've encoded it in Cbor, um, and then you have to do a little bit of crypto to to make sure that you know all is good, that the message has been signed or or whatnot. And and when you when you start to do things like that, then it can work, but it starts to take on the order of seconds um, yeah. if you're not if you're not careful. And that's just too long for unlocking a car, you know. At least in my opinion, I'm I'm impatient. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> I mean that that would not be very responsive. But um, 
So yeah, so 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 take mm-hmm. me through this like sort of messaging flow. I don't know if if our yeah, yeah. listeners can sort of visualize. Um, you're triggering it from what a remote or phone? Uh, yeah. So so you you um you have a phone or so yes. So you would typically I want to say that's that's the simplest model is you would pull out your phone and you you would bring up the app and you would push a button in the app to unlock your car. Mm-hmm. It would send a message over Bluetooth to the device in the car, and then. Um, it would do the right things in terms of security. And then the device in the car would turn around and actually unlock the car, either using stuff on the CAN bus or using, um, maybe it has a, a, you know, an old school uh, fob soldered right inside of it. You know? <laughs> so it's basically, that's the message flows. You, you, you basically go through that sequence. And the reason I think I kind of hesitated is that um, you don't really want to pull out a phone to unlock your car. <laughs> it's, you know, yeah. imagine you're carrying your groceries or it's just, it's so much friction to, to like pull out a phone, launch the app, um, push a button and you have to look at it, push a button. Sure. Uh, it's just like, okay, it's like we've kind of moved backwards from just reaching into your pocket and pushing a button on a key fob. Kind of like you have to unlock, yeah, you have to unlock your phone. So yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, yes. That reminds me uh, when we first started working at Vouch, I did not have yet. Uh, I did not have a phone that has face ID. Hmm. It was the um, older touch ID technology and that was another point of friction it's like oh i have to put my thumb on the button (laughs) to like do the biometrics that are needed to like convince the app that i'm the person that who should be unlocking the car um so so ultimately the the right answer i think um for that kind of stuff is to um unlock a car using uh proximity mechanisms (laughs) meaning as you walk up to the car it will communicate with some hardware that you have either um either an apple watch or your phone or some other fob-based hardware that you might be carrying with you that's custom to this, and then it um, then it cryptographically talks to that and unlocks the car for you. I see. As so, you like, approach it. I, I know the uh, the latest iPhones have this uh, ultra wideband capability oh, yes. in it. Yeah, that's so, that is exactly precisely that's how you can know that you're within the right distance of the car. Um, because if you think about it, you're like, how do you know that you're like within um, say like three feet of the car as opposed to, mm-hmm. you know, maybe you're w- walking away from your car in a parking lot. Um, or how do you know that it's not, it, it, the, the, it's not a, somebody else relaying a, a Bluetooth message. Yeah. And, and for that, you just have to, um, you have to, well, the way we do it is we, we basically have, um, uh, a key pair on your phone uh, that, that's used to kind of like be the root of the, the security that's needed to like then sign messages that are sent to the device in the car. Um, so it's, you know, it's typical, you know, application of, I, I know you're into security, right? You're, you're basically into this whole. Yeah. This whole yeah. I'm yeah. very interested in, the, in that kind of stuff, but, but yeah, I mean, there, it sounds easy to unlock a car, but you know, to, there are a lot of complexities around, preventing replays of messages, making sure you're talking to the right person on the other end. Um, And, uh, and, and like I had mentioned earlier in the podcast, the idea of vouch unlocking hotel doors or, um, you know, you could, you could apply this to lots of different things, garage doors. (laughs) And what we're doing at vouch right now is we're focusing on cars. Um, because like you said, it, uh, on the surface, it sounds easy, but then if you focus on that one problem domain or that one application domain, uh, you can you can just kind of like really hone that particular experience to get you know get it to work well for that particular mm. use case. So how does how does with vouch how does the identity piece um, uh, connect with uh, this this notion of opening uh, you know, opening hotel or opening opening your cars? Mm-hmm. Um, is that a separate thing or is this connected to the same? Uh, is that a topic that's um, Sorry, we'll edit this out. <laughs> I'm just no, no, it's fine. chewing over words. Um, yeah. So, is the identity piece uh, a related topic, or does that con- connect directly to the idea yeah. of uh, unlocking vehicles or hotels? So, so, fundamentally, Vouch has like an identity uh, platform that that is, you know, it's blockchain based, where the identity information, like I said, you you basically have like a a, a key pair that's created on your phone, mm-hmm. uh, and then we use biometrics to protect that key pair. Um, and, and that the public key associated with that key pair is put onto the blockchain and that's how, um, you can then have other people endorse 
uh, that public key by signing mm -hmm. for it, and, and that endorsement will be put on the blockchain. So fundamentally, if you start if you start off with this substrate where you have like an identity platform you, where you can say, "I am who I am," and you can con you know you can convince the system that you are who you claim you are, then you can then start to apply that to things like locking and unlocking things, where you can say, "This particular user, Joe." has the authorization to unlock this car mm. um and then you could that that kind of like is exciting where you can like use that to share uh keys so like if i say i wanted to lend you my car and you had the same app on your phone i could then share the key digitally to you um and because i would say oh okay i'm going to endorse you as as having the ability to unlock this particular car and and the way that ultimately works is um that endorsement would be kind of put onto put onto the blockchain and then conceptually, the, um, the device that's in the car would be able to see that endorsement that had been put on the blockchain. And it, and it can check the signatures and whatnot. And, can, and it can say, oh, okay, I know that Gotti now has permission to unlock this car as well. Um, but that, that, that's kind of an oversimplification because there's, it's, it's kind of challenging to get the device in the car to see the entire blockchain because it could be huge. So what we do is we, we do cool Merkle tree stuff to like, Hmm. get just the subset that's needed and it's all it's all cool cryptographic math stuff to <laughs> not to like hmm. gloss it over but that's that's the i think the world that you kind of get excited about is how to how to how to do that efficiently and securely without um, yeah without passing like a gigabyte of log information so instead yeah. you can just say you said it, that's conceptually how it works but mm -hmm. but you, you know you could just send the endorsement directly to the car and as long as the car trusts the same things that you know the whole system trusts then you don't actually have to transfer all that data at all right yeah and it's i think it's it's fair to say that we're, i want to say that we're not vouchers not really trying to fundamentally innovate at least not at the crypto level you know yeah. but this kind of stuff we're, we're trying to use the existing proven techniques in the correct way to like to basically apply it to this particular domain as a matter of fact we're not like we're not into blockchain kind of stuff. You know, when you mention blockchain, people might think, oh, you're deep into that. Like, no, no, blockchain is just a tool for us. We use it. Yeah, they're techniques. Uh, yeah. Um. So really, it's like it's like anything else. Like, it's it's mostly sweat equity, trying to make all this stuff work properly <laughs> and efficiently, um, you know, so that when you walk up to the car and you push the button, it unlocks. <laughs> no, No question, no latency, no, you know. And that's, it's, you, we've all been there, right? You're writing software and something that seems very simple um, uh, is, is challenging to get right in terms of um, reliability and all the corner cases. Sure. Multiple yeah. systems, wireless, the real world. Yes. There's a yeah. lot going on there. That's really interesting. Um, yeah. I mean, it's it, even when you're dealing with like hardware and cars, little simple things like if you have a, a, a device in your car, and you go and you turn your car on, at least with older cars, when you crank the engine, <laughs> that would drop the voltage a little bit. You know, it's normally 12 volts. Your, your device may reboot, you know? <laughs> so it's like all types of little things that you may oh, not have fun. thought about. Like once you, once you start working on that problem domain, or you're worried about the fact that you're putting a device into a car that uh, will sit there and just uh, drain the battery if left in there long enough. Mm. So you have to like worry about, uh, okay, can I, put, can I put parts of this hardware to sleep, you know, while it's sitting there? Um, so it's like the devil's in the details and, and I find that exciting. It's like, ah, okay. You, you, you start off with a, a very simple concept that everyone can understand. I just want to unlock my car, you know, <laughs> and then just, uh, all the little details needed to make that work are, are fascinating. The, the deeper you dig into it. Um, well, that's fun, man. I'm, I'm so glad you really relayed this, uh, this whole world of, uh, microcontrollers and, uh, ClojureScript yeah. in different different and domains. I, I know you're. And you, I, you said you're not using ClojureScript directly on these uh, car on the, units. On these chips, no. So to make it go fast, we still write stuff in C when it comes down to it, and we um, we want to make it so that we can provide libraries to other um, mm. manufacturers. To so it's it's probably a big ask to say, hey, are you willing to use this weird thing called Esperino with ClojureScript <laughs> running on it? Sure. And it's gonna you know you need to have a megabyte of RAM available. So, but I still have this this dream that we could pull this off where we could get closure or closure script to run in these really constrained environments where, you know, just if you think about it, like if we had, um, 
I, I noticed like a, 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 it was about a year or two ago, Scala came out with a native compiler for the Scala language. So Scala has like, you know, its roots in the JVM. And then later on, I guess they had Scala JS, just like mm -hmm. we have ClojureScript. And then like a year or so ago, they, Scala came out with a native compiler that could take, you know, Scala code and compile it down to native code in some way. I, I kind of, if, if I could snap my fingers and say, hey, can we have a closure dialect that compiles to native? That would be awesome if we had such a thing. Um, what kind of trade-offs would you be willing to make to make that happen? Oh, yeah. So immediately you have to think about like a REPL. Can you like, do you want to maintain a REPL? I would want mm. to. like, Or maybe at least have a development mode, you know? Um, and then, um, yeah, it's like the, the whole thing with perhaps with ClojureScript. Like you don't have the, um, you can't have the compiler come with you into your target environment. Um, mm. You have to like give up pieces of it. Uh, but I would, I would like to just be able to write, um, you know, some, some closure code that's uh, fairly, fairly straightforward and have it compile down to native stuff. I would still want to keep persistent data structures. I would For want that. Sure. I wouldn't want to have to do copy on write kind of stuff. You could claw um, those away from me. Yeah, from my dead And I know, uh, like Christoph, Christoph Grand and uh, his partner, but Baptiste, uh, Baptiste Dupuch, yeah. Okay, they're working on um, closure Dart. And I don't know what that really is yet, but I'm wondering, like, it's perhaps it's meant to go onto mobile devices. Yeah, where Dart might be, but it what what intrigues me about that is like I think about this and like is Dart a compiled thing? Like, does it compile down to native? So I'm 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 intrigued. I want to know like where is that going to go? Would that lead to the ability to to generate machine code? Uh, and and maybe they have a specific target use case in mind that might just be mobile. But if if it opens the door, let, let's say you could then take that and make a command line app on your computer, um, just compile it down to some sort of machine code. That would be that'd um, be cool. I mean, even just targeting. I mean, at, at Newbank where I work, uh, we mm -hmm. use uh, we use Flutter a lot, and that's uh, you oh know, yeah, Dart based. So that's Dart based. Okay, I'm, that's I'm, probably part of the story. Yeah, yeah, I'm watching. Closure Dart with uh, with very with with a very keen interest because that would would directly uh, impact us in a very good way. I mean, we use Closure pretty much for everything on the back end. So, um, if um, but the Flutter world is a is sort of an it's an alien world, you know, different uh, different paradigm entirely. So if we could have Closure running in yet another place. Um, yes, uh, it's, that's. It's, that's what I think the closure darts thing is probably going to solve is the is the flutter world. Um, so, on that note, um, mm -hmm. you've done some work around uh, React Native and uh, oh, okay, um, yeah, yeah. So, what got me into all of this, even what got me fundamentally into ClojureScript itself, was I was trying to do mobile apps back in the day, hmm. um, and uh, like everyone else, like around 2012, I finally I couldn't resist it anymore, and I learned how to write mobile apps. I'm like, ah, I got to. I got to mess with this stuff. I need to learn how to do it. So I learned Objective C and how to, you know, how to make apps in Xcode and whatnot. So I've been doing it that way. But then uh, I'm like, ah, that like like I kind of initially said I wanted to figure out how to do this with Closure Script. And I actually I actually like made my own uh, way of doing this. Um, and it's called Gobi. You can look up the repo. And it's I basically like figured out how to get Closure Script to run inside a JavaScript core uh, mm -hmm. and drive a uh, a native app by kind of like poking at the um then like if you imagine like if you have a list view inside of objective c you can like you can say okay that's cool it's all native but then i want to like control it or orchestrate it from closure script and have it like uh drive that thing and and that's so i built i built a couple apps that way um but it's like it's a mess because what you're doing is you're using a language like closure script that's ostensibly functional you know, have these functional mm -hmm. paradigms, but yet you're like, you're poking at this bag of mutation by, by changing the UI, you know, saying, okay, like add things here and there. So it's like, it's, it's like, eh, it's good, but it's not great. <laughs> so React Native um, came out after that, after I had been working on that stuff that way. Um, and I think, um, I think because I had been, I, well, I know this actually, someone in Facebook told me this because I had like been doing stuff with Closure Script and, and mobile apps. Uh, and perhaps because of my association with ClojureScript, I got really lucky. I got a preview copy of React Native. There was like there was a point where they announced it, uh, 
And everyone's like, oh, wow. And then they said, oh, by the way, you're not going to have access to it for like another three or four months. Um, And at that point in time, they gave it to me and David Nolan uh, and other people, of course, as well. But I'm like, oh, wow, I have access to this thing. (laughs) So I like I was I was basically the first person to figure out how to get ClojureScript to drive this thing and and um, and make it all work. Um, So that's uh, even so that that led to like kind of like a, this hodgepodge of scripts. Like, I think that's what I do is like, I, I kind of take things and glue them together in some way to just get it to fundamentally work. Uh, and that led to this thing called, um, someone, someone took my stuff and, and named it Natal, took all the scripts and named it Natal. Hmm. Um, and then later on, someone else took that stuff and polished it even more. And that's now called Renatal, <laughs> huh. which is, is like, if you go and look, um, that's probably the most popular way to like, do React Native app development for both iOS and Android is this Renatal system. Um, but ah, I didn't uh, realize the the evolution there. Yeah, it's like a long the, story. That, that's <laughs> uh, that's, yeah, this this was around the 2015 timeframe. Um, uh, and, and backing up a little bit, uh, React itself had already um, gotten good support from from ClojureScript because there were libraries like you know Reframe and reagent uh so that all that existed and and um like david nolan had um other you know other layers on top of this uh react thing uh so it turned out once react native came came out and we got closure script to work that way all of this existing stuff that had been written for the web pretty much was able to be applied to uh, mobile apps you could you could use it to you know you had to you, you had to recognize that you were driving different things inside of a mobile app. You know, some of the constructs were different, but the, but the ideas were the same. Uh, and you could have a REPL into it and basically, um, you know, d- drive your mobile app directly from, you know, from ClojureScript. Uh, so that's, that was, uh, to me, that was like, okay, once I, once I figured out, once that became a thing, I stopped doing it the, old, the older way where mm-hmm. I was like writing my own layer and whatnot. Like this is a much better way to do things. The the way I heard it described once was uh, mm-hmm. it, instead of like write once, run anywhere. The old uh, yes, the old the Java. Uh, the Java, yeah, the the motto of Java in the in the early days. It's it's more like learn once and then run or write anywhere where you learn a conceptual model. Like I guess the React conceptual model, and then you can transpose that uh, into different domains whether you're doing web or or native um the you know what what's happening at the leaves might be different but you know you're still working with the same sort of conceptual um raw material everywhere um yes is that, that is true is that a like a accurate uh yeah so, portrayal? so yeah a consequence of that is if you have someone who um is proficient at building react apps and closure script and said hey we have a react native app can you come work on that? That individual could take all that knowledge and and apply it to that domain, because it's the same. It's the same ideas. Just instead of having, um, and I'm not a web developer, but I assume that there's you know certain constructs you use to um, create list views and, and web pages and whatnot. Um, all the, all the all the ideas transfer over, and you just you start. And I guess it's also the same thing is is true between iOS and Android. Uh, React Native has like um, it makes concessions for each of those platforms where you, so you end up seeing differences, uh, between the two. So you, you might, you know, when you're writing an app, there's little places here and there where you may need to have some conditional code that might do something different for iOS versus Android. Um, so it's, it is definitely, like you said, you, you, you learn it once and then you just apply it to either iOS, Android or the web. Um, well, one thing that's interesting to say about all this stuff is this basically um, this Renatal thing um, ended up being basically like some tooling around this technology stack to kind of make it all work. And invariably what, what happens there um, is uh, things get to be complicated and, and things might break. If for example, react native changes something and your tooling is overly dependent on some aspects of that stuff. Um, so uh, both Bruce Hellman and David Nolan, when they were looking at what was kind of going on in this space, they were like, ah, this, this Renatal tooling is doing too much. Hmm. 
Uh, it's trying to hold your hand for you too much. It's trying to make it, it's trying to make things easy for you and trying to make things a little bit too turnkey. And because of that, um, it, it becomes fragile. Uh, it's, mm. you know, it becomes a little bit too tied to the React Native stack. And if anything changes or any assumptions are violated, um, complicated tooling like that can easily break and become fragile. Uh, so David uh, basically took a new take on this. Um, and it's also along the lines that I heard Bruce Hammond saying at the time, which is, don't try, don't try to make your tooling do much at all, but instead embrace the React Native uh, system and just make your tooling really lightweight and just enough to get things to work. And that way it's less fragile because if anything changes in React Native, your tool is not touching any of that stuff. Uh, so that's, that's, uh, that led to Krell. That's essentially something that David Nolan produced within Vouch. Uh, and it's, it, in my opinion, is, is, the, is the, um, the most modern approach on the React Native uh, stack, if you will. For closure script uh and it's um it it kind of like it it, it kind of magically like like the closure language it kind of gets out of your way like you start up the thing and it just like works <laughs> and you stop thinking about it and it's like you even forget that you like you don't even necessarily have to have the crell repl running to to um to bring up your app you just start up things and it just works and you you sometimes forget that krell's even in there so th maybe that's the mark of a good tool is when it's so good, you forget that it's even there. <laughs> Just disappears. Yeah. So, so what exactly is it? At like, I'm trying to, I'm trying to understand how it, it how crawl works or yeah yeah how, how it I don't works know if I or, could do it justice. You probably have to, <laughs> probably have to okay. get David to explain it in detail. But it's but essentially, I remember David. The first step he took to do this right was he started reading. Um, how um how the react native system works and there's this metro bundler that runs on the side and so he he fundamentally invested a lot to like really understand at the bottom how that system works and um i want to say if i had to speculate is he just kind of like set things up to kind of work well with that hmm. system so you know it basically puts the the compiled javascript in the right place and i and see adds adds a few light hooks here and there to get things to Okay. So um, it, so it exposes the platform and it's not super highly coupled with what's going yeah, on there. Yeah, that's a fair way to say it. Like the fundamentally when you're when you're working with React Native, you would have some JavaScript on disk and you would edit it by hand and change it and then you would see it, you know, updated in your app. Hmm. Um Krell is basically another way to get that JavaScript and it's just doing it in a really light-handed way uh, and not really being too coupled. With the system, and that's that's perhaps that's a general pattern. Um, is whenever you you might you might want to um, try to do too much for someone, even ClojureScript itself. Like when you when you go to use it, uh, it it fundamentally out of the box uh, just kind of like works with Depth Eden now, and it's just very a very light handed approach uh, that ends up being more flexible. But for newcomers, um, if you say, "Oh, I just want to," quickly fire up a closure script REPL um, and, and use it to do something, you you find that it's not as turnkey as it could be, mm -hmm. where it's like not doing everything for you, but it's like, it's these simple composable tools that you can then use to like um, build things with without it kind of getting in your way. Um, so that's, that's one lesson I think I've learned over the past half a decade or so is like your initial reaction might be like, oh, I'm gonna write the end all be all system that does everything for you. Uh, in terms of tooling, and whenever you do that, that tooling becomes, I don't know, a little too rigid. It reflects your ways of doing things, or uh, becomes fragile because it's depending on things that it shouldn't be depending on. And I think uh, David is probably doing it right, and his his mental approach to things is to just like, ah, doing less is better. <laughs> see, you get the leverage you without the without the brittleness. Yeah. Nice. That's it's a, this kind of like minification idea, like uh, a minimality idea. <laughs> that's a good, good life lesson. Well, so on that note, um, I wanted to ask you if you would help us uh, uh, send our listeners off with our traditional question, which is to uh, re relate or impart a um, piece of advice of any sort to our listener. It could be closure related, could be not. Yeah. So the thing I was thinking about, so 
me personally, um, I'm now like 50 years old and I've, I'm still learning new things in my life. And I find that kind of surprising. Like I've recently got into electronics and have kind of like delved into that world. I'm now learning Japanese oh, wow. and, and it's it, so the, the, and what I'm, my, my take on this kind of stuff was I, I always thought like, well, perhaps you would learn a lot of this stuff when you were younger, you know, in your college days, you would learn, you would learn these things and um, you're always capable of learning new stuff. But I think the advice that I would give is like, um, don't, don't exclude yourself from like learning things that seem to be like uh, out of your reach. So for me, electronics was definitely mm. one of those kind of things. When I would look at a, um, a PCB with circuit, you know, stuff on it and, uh, you know, I'm not an electrical engineer and, and that stuff just seemed to be way out of my reach. Uh, but I found that if I just kept watching a lot of YouTube videos about it <laughs> <laughs> and after like a couple of years, the thing that seemed impossible to me starts to make more sense uh, and, and I can grok it. And so that's, that's my advice is like, if you're like me, you may start off in this place where you think, oh, that thing that I'm looking at, the Japanese or electronics or anything playing a guitar, it, it seems way too complicated and you might be frustrated, like especially with something like a guitar, you might pick up one and get frustrated and put it back down because it's just too, you're not making progress or you're not, you know, not, not proficient yet. And my advice is like, eh, even, even if you're older like me, you can, if you stick with it, <laughs> after enough time, something will happen and it'll rub off on you <laughs> and, and you'll, you'll learn it. So that's my main advice, I guess, is, uh, don't give up on something that you think is difficult like that. Um, you know, you, the human body's ability to adapt and learn is, is quite a, quite impressive. It's amazing. amazing isn't it? I'm, I'm just yeah. nodding along with you. And I, I think people listening will be nodding along too, because we all have our, we all have that, that subject that we think is inscrutable, but yeah. you just chip away at it and then you're there, you know? And it may take a long time too. That's, that's the part of the advice too is, give yourself a year or two of not understanding it, not doing it. And then it'll just like slowly come and you'll like, Oh, okay. Now I'm getting this, whatever it was that's causing me difficulty. And then suddenly you're an expert. So. Yes. Yeah. You just need to understand it better than everyone else or a little bit better. And then you are the expert, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, Mike, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Um, super it, yeah. fascinating. And I, um, very much appreciate all the things that you've contributed to the the wider community um so keep on keeping on and thanks uh, yeah would love to have you on again sometime thanks yes thank you very much you have been listening to the cognicast the cognicast is brought to you by cognitect you can subscribe to the cognicast listen to past episodes view cover art and read episode transcripts at our home on the web cognitect.com slash cognicast you can contact the show by tweeting at Cognicast or by emailing us at podcast at Cognitech.com. Our guest this week was Mike Fikes, who you can find on Twitter at mfikes, at M-F-I-K-E-S. Our host this week was Gotti Shaben, who you can find on Twitter at smashthepast. This week's cover art was created by Russ Olson. Audio production is by Bear Cave Audio and Robert Randolph. The Cognicast is produced by Kim Foster, Joe Smith, and Jarrett Binford. The main theme music is by Newbank's own Nasca, who can be found at www.nascamusic.com. I'm Robert Randolph. Thank you for listening, and we hope you to hear us again on the next episode of The Cognicast.